<laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this brother and for your work of grace in his life. Thank you for the love you've given him for you, for your word, for your people. Now we pray that your spirit will fill his heart as he preaches your truth to us, that he'll preach with faithfulness and power, that he will uh, know the freeing work of the spirit as he delivers the truth of God. We pray for the spirit's work in our hearts, giving us ears to hear, hearts to respond to you, and uh, help us to grow in love and in the way our lives adorn our profession of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Please open your Bible to the first letter of Paul to Timothy in chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses 14 through 16 in 1 Timothy 3. And it is always a joyful privilege to be here with you. I'm grateful for the warm welcome my family and I receive all the time, and I'm thankful for Pastor Dan for giving me the opportunity to preach God's Word. So praise the Lord for the fellowship we have in His Son, Jesus Christ. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 14, we'll read down to verse 16. And the Word of God says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that illumines our minds, our hearts, so that we can grasp your truth. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for my brothers and sisters that have gathered here so that we can pray with one another, that we can sing praises to you, that we can open your word and have it read and explained. And I pray that you would be with us, that you would help me preach the things that you have shown me through this text, and that you would help my brethren to be able to grasp what you have for them through your word. I thank you that you've given us light. I thank you that you've given us salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we stand here and that we pray. Amen. It's probably not difficult for us to agree that Christian believers face challenging times whether it's the moral decay of the culture around us, whether we're talking about the nation's politics or economics, and we read about the milita military tensions around the world, natural disasters, disease, we could probably be here the whole day speaking about these things. But they all attest that we live in a fallen world. As has been the case since Adam and Eve sinned, described in Genesis 3. And every generation since then has experienced the consequences of sin. 
We have to endure difficulty, pain, heartache, even in, in ordinary day-to-day -day activities that we would think should be fine, but are not. And believers also face increasing pressure from an unbelieving world to conform to ideologies, practices, norms, which we know are not pleasing to God. And if that pressure were not enough, we witness and we see that the nominal church trying to fit into the world's mold and attempting to give spiritual sanction to ways of thinking and living that we know do not accord with godliness and are not fitting for the community of God's blood-bought people. As an example, just this month, there was a sort of Christian social media controversy because there was an, an Easter church service which resembled more an entertainment theater production than the proclamation and celebration of the resurrection of our Lord. Now, this has been happening for a long time, but every time the true church of God finds that shocking, that people would gather in the name of the Lord, supposedly, but they would be entertained rather than proclaim the name of our Lord Jesus. And the controversy itself shows how far removed from scriptural instructions a Christian culture can go. What are we to do? What are we to say? What do we tell our children? What do we tell the younger generation? What, what do we tell people? Because the challenges appear overwhelming. How are sound churches to compete with dazzling lights, entertaining activities, sensual thinking, and worldly living? We see the competition and we may think, we stand no chance. But the answer found in our text is that we walk in the light of God's word. We live godly lives in the fellowship of God's people and we devote ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the exhortation for us all this morning will be to live according to God's word, to conduct ourselves rightly in the Lord's church, and to worship our glorious and risen Lord Jesus Christ and see him work in our midst and through us. We may be tempted to feel like our times are unprecedented, but in reality, God's church has always faced tremendous dangers. From its humble beginnings in first century Israel, Satan and the system of this world have relentlessly attacked God's people, seeking to utterly destroy our allegiance to Christ. And we must make no mistake, we are engaged in a real spiritual warfare. And the enemies of God and his people are not playing games. They're serious. And they're serious about their goals, which are to corrupt what is sound, kill what is alive, desecrate that which is holy, confuse what is clear, bend what is straight, and obscure the light. And they want to do it thoroughly. They want to influence what we think, what we say, what we do. And the Apostle Paul knew these dangers well, and he writes to encourage his son in the faith. If we look at the first verse of the first chapter, he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, 
my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wanted Timothy to find his spiritual stamina in fellowship with the triune God, for there was a lot of work to do. Verse 3 of chapter 1, As I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine. Timothy, you need to know you will find people within the church. Yes, within it, let alone outside the church. But within the church, there, there will be those who will attempt to teach a different doctrine. A strange one. And we need to realize that these people will not necessarily reject sound doctrine expressly, completely, publicly. They will just attempt to modify it, make it different, perhaps more acceptable to the culture, less offensive, not so outdated for their ears, a little more modern, more interesting. You know, we could say nowadays more social media friendly, more 21st century uh, appropriate, more space age church type of thing. You know, many things that they can call it. But to all those things, Paul says, no. Don't let them, Timothy. Command them not to teach differently. Because if they do, here's what happens just from 1 Timothy chapter 1. It gives rise to mere speculation, verse 4, fruitless discussion, verse 6, there's no understanding, verse 7, people suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith, in verse 19. And in our current religious climate, or often irreligious, it's painful to find plenty of examples to the consequences of forsaking the sound doctrine of God's word. And Paul offers the antidote, of course, he not only confronts the darkness, he not only points what's wrong, but he sets forth clearly before us the gospel of the glory of the blessed God in verse 11. He tells us of the stewardship from God, which is by faith in verse 4, that the goal of our command is love, verse 5. Paul says he was grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord for putting Paul into his service in verse 12, for showing him mercy in verse 13, because the grace of our Lord was more than abundant in verse 14, leading him to write that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners among whom I am foremost, verse 15. There is a faith which was once for all handed down to the saints as Jude writes. And this faith must be preached and communicated using the sound words of Scripture. You see, it is only through God's supernatural revelation that we can be freed from the bondage, obscurity, and the ignorance of our own speculations, our wrong ideas, and our sinful behavior. We look at the creation around us in our natural fallen state, and what do we do? We worship the creature rather than the creator. 
And we live in a space age where rockets are launched into space with remarkable frequency. You may not realize that, but it, it's quite remarkable how often uh, spaceships are sent. In fact, just this week there was one launched from Brownsville, not too far away from here. And these spaceships go out into space and they, they shoot selfies. You know, they have a, a selfie picture and they send the pictures back to Earth. And it's just mesmerizing to, to, to see those pictures and to see all that God had created. And what does natural man do? Worship the creation rather than the creator. Without the light of the gospel, we are told in chapter 1, verse 7, that though the law of God is good, men then turn and use it unlawfully. And we will always go astray when left to our own devices. We need God's word to teach us about the gospel of grace, to teach us about our sinfulness, that we have sinned against the holy God and there's nothing we could offer to save ourselves or to keep ourselves saved, to keep ourselves in the faith on our own. We can't. Rather, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and like me. He came that we might be saved. It is in God's word we find the trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance of chapter 1, verse 15. And so when we come to our text for this morning, and we read in chapter 3, verse 14, I am writing these things to you, we should know these are important matters. Things which Paul has already addressed in the first three chapters of 1 Timothy, and he will reinforce in the last three chapters of the letter. The things which Paul writes about in verse 14 have chapter 1 as their background, but the focus really begins in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, first of all, then. As we gather and as we live as the Lord's church, we need to pay attention to what the sacred writings hold as of first importance, as priority, as things which must be adhered to and which we cannot neglect without grave spiritual consequences. And what is it that is considered of first importance in these instructions? Well, it's prayer. Prayer, chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We must pray for all men, including and even especially those we may not be inclined to pray for, those in authority over us. We may easily forget about them, but we are told to pray for them. If someone asks, who should I pray for? It's really, really nice to be able to confidently say, pray for all. And if the answer comes back, well, the problem is, I don't like them. Well, it's a great opportunity to encourage one another to pray anyway. 
to pray for them. We learn from our Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 5.44 to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Why would we do this? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And you can only be children of the Heavenly Father if you have been born again by God's grace, believing Christ Jesus came into the world to save you, a sinner, and then by the powerful and precious ministry of the Holy Spirit to follow the command to pray for all men. If we look further down in chapter 2, in verse 8, Paul also instructs men, men specifically, in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And you may have already noticed that there is a pronounced emphasis on godly living in this letter. And so men are to pray, and they must do it without the disputes which can arise from that doctrine. If we go to chapter 6 of this letter, in verse 3, Paul reiterates, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but having a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Men must live holy lives. And if they do, they can be expected to be faithful and effective prayer warriors. But the letter's instructions are not limited to men, of course. Paul has plenty to say about women, too. We go back to chapter 2 in verse 9. After charging the men to pray without wrath and dissension, he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women professing godliness. And you can see how much godliness is emphasized in First Timothy. There is this emphasis on godly behavior, which we must be careful not to confuse with moralism. It is not moralism because we're not talking about merely external acts like prayer pose, prayer length, or just clothing, but behavior which accords, which is in line with godliness. A true piety whose actions flow from a redeemed heart, a heart transformed by God's grace. And even though it's no longer culturally acceptable to say it, Paul doesn't really care, and he continues in verse 11, a woman must learn in quietness in all submission. And it is important to understand the reasoning why this is. Verse 13 of chapter 2, for it was 
Adam who was first formed and then Eve. Adam was formed first. And who formed Adam? God did. Adam was formed first, pre-fall, prior to sin entering the world. And we can be assured God's design for men and women is a good design. There is a difference between men and women, and it's incredible that we must say nowadays there is such a thing as men and women. And the difference exists because the creator of heaven and earth, who laid the foundation of everything that exists, he put that difference in the created order. These instructions are particularly important and applicable to God's church. Paul then proceeds in chapter 3, verse 1, to write about church leadership, starting with the requirements of an overseer, the men who are to lead faithful churches with an emphasis on their moral character, on their godliness. Chapter 3, verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but considerate, peaceable, free from the love of money, leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And even if one is not an overseer, or we don't meet the qualifications to be one, church ministry still requires faithful men and women of God, as instructed in chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. The things which Paul writes are not optional. And let me take you to chapter 4 just to reinforce this. It's not optional. Chapter 4, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. And in verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, life and doctrine. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. These instructions are of utmost importance because spiritual life and health is at stake. And if we go back to chapter 3, verse 14, we find a personal note from the apostle to Timothy there when he says, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I am delayed. This letter was spent sometime after the end of the book of Acts, which ends with Paul's uh, first Roman imprisonment, but he has a fair amount of liberty at the end of Acts. But written sometime before the second of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, 
in which he will be martyred, as is expected, in 2 Timothy. So the apostle had this, this window of ministry opportunity between these two imprisonments, and even though we don't know all the details, we can be sure Paul wanted to encourage Timothy personally, but had other pressing things preventing him from doing so personally, and he wasn't sure how much longer he would be delayed, so what, he, what does the apostle do? He writes. The ministry situation in Ephesus was urgent, and the apostle writes a Holy Spirit-inspired letter that has served the needs of Christ's church for centuries. And we bless the name of the Lord for giving us his word, that we may walk in truth and in holiness. And we are thankful that Paul tells Timothy why he writes in verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know. So that you will know. Paul wants Timothy to have a true and accurate knowledge of how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul tells Timothy personally. He tells the church at Ephesus corporately. And he tells all churches up to our time how we should conduct ourselves where? In the church of the living God. In the household of God. You want to know how to conduct yourself in the household of God? Well, you've come to the right place. And we are in the right letter. Paul uses the imagery of a house with pillars which hold a roof and a foundation that serves as a support to explain the importance and the glory of the church. It's metaphorical language. The church is not a building. It is a group of people, the redeemed people of God. But the house and building imagery vividly portray how vital the church is in the plan of God. Who upholds the truth? Well, God himself, obviously. The truth of his gospel is God's revelation to mankind. But by what means does God uphold the truth in the world? It's through his church. Through his church. And this is an awesome and, and sobering reality to know that we as the family of God, as the assembly of the redeemed people represented in local churches, we are pillars and support of the truth. If God's church doesn't testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this fallen world, who's going to do it? No one else will. And that is by God's design. And it's why it's so important we behave godly in the Lord's church, both in regular and corporate worship services like we are having now, but also in our daily lives, interacting routinely with one another and with the world around us. Our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, to be trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It should not surprise us, though it is sad, when the world around us seemed to be crazier by the day. When men and women of depraved mind given over to their sinful passions as a righteous judgment from God run away from the truth. But the truth must they hear. And that truth must be lived out by whom? By the church of the living God. It's a sobering reality precisely because it is the church of the living God. Our God lives from everlasting to everlasting. The Lord and head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, is risen from the dead and he is alive forevermore. And as the living God, he sees, he hears, he weighs every single thought, attitude, motive, word, and deed. Nothing escapes his notice. In Revelation chapter 1, John describes the risen Lord as standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands, which are seven churches, including the one in Ephesus, in which Timothy many years prior to John's vision was ministering. The eyes of our Lord in Revelation 1 are compared to a flame of fire. Nothing escapes his gaze. And he will reward and judge his people, his own. That's why we must know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. If we understand the power, the glory, and the holiness of the one who owns the church, who purchased her with his own blood, then we can see why our behavior is so important. God's witness in this world can be accurately portrayed by a godly church, or by contrast, his witness can be maligned by carelessness in following his instructions for his church. But praise be to God, he has not left us alone. The Lord walks among his churches and keeps us in his hand. Believers are called a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6.19. A sanctuary of the living God is 2 Corinthians 6.16. And we read it in our call to worship in Ephesians 2. The same idea and concept and reality that we are the church of the living God. We have all the spiritual resources we need to live according to God's word to conduct ourselves rightly in the Lord's church, and to serve and worship our glorious and recent Lord. Our God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. And if we go to chapter 3, verse 16, 
It says, by common confession or undeniably universally agreed among believers, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And this mystery of godliness is Christ himself. And we know that from the hymn which follows, composed of six lines. We serve and sing to Christ our Lord in sharp contrast to the pagan worship that surrounded the Ephesian elders when Paul wrote to Timothy. If you'd like, you can go to Acts chapter 19 in verse 23. I'm going to read a, a, a narrative there which illustrates this idea that great is the mystery of godliness contrasted with pagan worship. In Acts chapter 19, verse 23, we read, Now about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workers of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity is from this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable crowd, saying that things made with hands are not God's. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be considered as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship is even about to be brought down from her majesty. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now this Artemis, an idol made with human hands, unable to defend herself or do anything, elicited the worship of spiritually blind people. But not so with our risen and living Lord. Back in 1 Timothy 3.16, what is actually and truthfully great is the mystery of godliness. And this mystery refers not to something unknowable, but to something God must reveal, and He has graciously revealed. He has revealed the source of the godliness in His redeemed people, in those who will gladly follow the things which have been written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and things which are beautifully and succinctly stated in this very early Christian hymn of 1 Timothy 3.16. He who was manifested in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The hymn is introduced by he who... And there is no doubt this refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the reason why Paul can confidently assert at the beginning of the verse, and by common confession, undeniably, universally agreed. It's a hymn 
the Ephesian believers would have been very familiar with. And it speaks first of the incarnation. God the Son taking on a human nature, being manifested in the flesh. And it's a hymn, so it wouldn't be fighting a particular heresy, but I want to know that it says the Lord Jesus was manifested. He was not created. Our Lord Jesus has existed from all eternity, and in time he was manifested in the flesh. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when our Lord Jesus dwelt among us, he was vindicated in the Spirit. His life showed he was sent by the Father to accomplish all he had purposed him to do. And we find insight in Romans 1 into the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was designated as the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Our Lord's perfect life, death on the cross, resurrection and ascension all demonstrate or vindicate everything he did was in the power of the Spirit and pleasing to the Father. And he was seen by angels because this is a hymn of which Paul chose six lines. There are several ways in which we could analyze the structure to uncover the beautiful truths it expresses. You can consider the six lines as a single unit, you can take three stanzas of two lines each or two stanzas of three lines each. But whichever way you examine it, the hymn shows the greatness of the mystery of godliness. And so for our purposes this morning, we'll divide it in two stanzas of three lines each, which makes seen by angels the last line of the first stanza. The first stanza would read, He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. And by looking at the structure of the hymn in this particular way, we can say this first stanza speaks of the ministry of our Lord while he was on earth. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. And in the Gospels, we find the angels serving and witnessing the events related to the life of our Lord on earth. For example, when our Lord was born, angels spoke to shepherds in the field. In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, 
glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. He was seen by angels. And when our Lord rose from the dead, we also find angels in the scene in Luke chapter 24, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and when, the men were, and when the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Our Lord was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, and the result of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection and glorious ascension is the reason why we can sing the second stanza in the hymn. He who was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And Luke 24, 46 gives us the charge, the charge from the risen Lord to the church, to his disciples. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We need not bow to the pressures of this world. We need not bow to any satanic schemes for the Lord, the risen Lord, walks among and is with his churches. He has won the battle. He has bought us for himself by the price of his own blood. The gospel of our Lord has gone forth and will continue to go forth into all the world, beginning, in our case right here, in this community, in this city, in this state, in this nation. Will we proclaim him? Will the church of the living God proclaim him? We are charged to do so. And we can have the confidence that as we do so, all those whom the Lord calls will believe by the hearing of his word. Our spiritual weapons are powerful in the Lord. In Acts chapter 17, there was an unbelieving crowd in Thessalonica, and this crowd was, was upset. They were unsettled because speaking of Paul and Christ's followers, they said, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, 
Jesus. You know whom the world and Satan fear? The King Jesus. Paul's alleged crime in Acts 17 is shown in verse 3, where, he, where we find Paul explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. And the crowd said, they're upsetting the world and they have come here also. Because of whom Christ is and what he has done, he is and will be proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and finally taken up in glory. And this speaks of our Lord's ascension into heaven, but not only that, but also his present intercessory ministry for his people at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able also to save forever. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And if you are here today and have not given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is, is the right time to do it. Our Lord is alive. He is in glory, and He will one day return to judge the living and the dead, not in humiliation, but in power. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 14, in verse 61, they're questioning the Lord Jesus very close to the time of of his crucifixion. The religious leaders of the nation of Israel are questioning him, and the high priest said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And what did Jesus say? I don't know. Thinking about this. What did he say? The question was, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. But he did not stop there. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And with such a marvelous promise, Will you join me in asking the Lord to strengthen us and place a godly zeal in us to live according to God's word, to conduct ourselves rightly in the Lord's church, and to worship our glorious and risen Lord Jesus Christ? We must ask the Lord that we may live according to the mystery of godliness. And by God's grace, our local church, which is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, will be there to proclaim Him among the nations so that, it, that He may be, be believed in the world and we may sing that He has been taken up in glory. Let us go and be a witness in this world 
without fear, full of faith and love, seeking to bring glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and we worship you for the marvelous plan of salvation which you decreed, which you determined, Lord, to send your only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we confess, we proclaim that our Lord Jesus is the Christ. And we confess and we acknowledge and we worship him because he is seated at the right hand of the majesty of high in glory. And we live, Lord, we pray that you would help us live in the light of his return, knowing that he will be returning in power to judge the living and the dead. Lord, we rejoice that those of us who know our Lord Jesus Christ are safe in him. Lord, but we know that there are many people in this world around us that do not know him, that need to hear clearly and boldly the message of sin and salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us as your church to proclaim him among the nations so that our Lord Jesus Christ may be believed in the world to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.